And we're going to find that uh, even though that it looks like that there's a difference between the Gentiles and the Jew, there really isn't any difference. In fact, that difference is one of the great things that we're going to learn today that is a great practical application to your life. Even though the book of Romans has a, a direction doctrinally that really systematically shows you and unveils to the church the new teachings that make up the body of Christ, there's so much that we can learn just from the, uh, the very chapters themselves. And I, every time I come through the book of Romans, it's a book that, that just keeps opening itself up and, and revealing more. And I think, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's going to really help you today, especially some of you younger Christians, because we're going to talk about today as we get on down here something that you have to face all the time. Older Christians shouldn't have to face it, but many times they do because <clears throat> they don't grow the way that they should, and uh, they get caught in the same snarls that, uh, that for their, all of their lives. But if you're a young Christian this morning, I guarantee you, when we get into this a little bit, and I'll bring it back and make note of it, there's, there's something here that you, if you haven't already experienced, you will experience it as you build your relationship with God. But in chapter 2, we're going to now focus on the nation of Israel, the Jews, and we're going to see how that they're in the same mess that the Gentiles are in. <clears throat> they just get there from a different angle. You know, I think it's important to keep in mind uh, what Paul, where Paul is going with all of this. And I, I think that one of the things we want to do in Romans is I want to give you an overall concept of the book while I gave you a chapter-by-chapter chapter breakdown of the book. We saw, or we're going to see, that when he gets in chapter 3, 4, and 5, we haven't gotten there yet, but when we do get into chapter 3, 4, and 5, what he's going to do in those chapters is he's going to begin to show uh, us and the Jew and the Gentile while the only, that the only solution to man's problems, the only solution, what he's done in chapter 1, he showed us that the Gentiles have their issues, and then in chapter 2, we're about to look at the Jews that have their issues. And what he does in chapter 3, 4, and 5 is he, he begins to show, after he laid out that, that the only way for the Jews or the Gentiles to solve their issues that they have is to get God's righteousness. That's the only thing that will fix your problem. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your own personal Savior, the only thing that will fix what's wrong with you is you to get shed of your unrighteousness and get God's righteousness. That's the key. And that's what he begins to do in chapter 3, 4, and 5. Oh, no, there'll be great chapters. There's so much to learn in there. And then after he goes through 3, 4, and 5, he begins in chapter 6. And in chapter 6, through the rest of the book, he begins to form now the basis uh, that is going to make the doctrine that the church is going to follow. Everything else, and we've talked about this before, how that you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Acts, and then the first book that you have after those introduction books to the church age is the foundation book, which is Romans. And from 6 on, he lays down basically the very things that I'm teaching you on Sunday morning or Thursday night. There isn't anything that I don't ever teach you, whether it be in the Institute, whether it be in our book studies Thursday night or even on Sunday morning that isn't found and, and the foundation of it doesn't go back to the book of Romans. Why it's such an incredibly important book and it really, uh, it really is the one that really can affect your life. Now, we saw in chapter 1 how, and we now have the understanding that in chapter 1 that the Gentiles 
uh, really have some issues. And when we come into chapter 2, uh, when we're going to study the difference between the mindset of the Gentiles and the Jews, there's two basic concepts we want to grasp. And this really makes it really easy for you to see what's being said here, and it really helps you in your own life in, in dealing with circumstances and, and dealing with people. And this is what we're going to move toward today. But I want to begin reading here in Romans chapter 2. Uh, let's pick it up in verse 1, and we'll read down here probably around verse 4, 5, and 6, and then we'll begin to pick it up from there. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore thou art excusable, O man, uh, whosoever thou art that judgeth, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that uh, condemnest, uh, for thou that judgest, does the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them uh, which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and an impotent heart, treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of righteous judgment of God, who will render every man according to his deed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the time that you've given us today and for the men and women that have decided in their lives with all the other things they could have decided to do today, they decided to come and hear your word being preached. Lord, I pray that you'll give me the ability to convey what you have uh, in this book to them. Lord, uh, I know I stand here as an empty vessel unless you fill me with your spirit. You give me the words to say, the way to say it. You give me the understanding and the ability to communicate and, Lord, uh, may your people who have, who have come here today by their own choice have come here today to hear your word. May they leave today with their, with their cup full. Help us, Lord. Help us to leave here challenged, motivated, and with a, with a renewed determination to serve you in these last days. And we'll thank you and praise, and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Amen. Now, as we start coming down through chapter 2, we already studied one, chapter 1. We, we see two basic concepts that make up the difference between the Jew and the Gentile. And they're really key to our study. In chapter 1, and this is what I want you to understand, in chapter 1, we saw that the Gentiles sin against God in their unrighteousness. And we saw all the depravity. I took, you know, much time and laid out all of the ungodliness that they were going through and all of the filth that was connected with the Gentiles. In chapter 2, and here lies the key, yeah, remember now, the Jews are looking at the Gentiles in chapter 2, and they, they have no love for the Gentiles. Never have. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. And what you got in chapter 1 is you got the Gentiles sin against God in their unrighteousness. But in chapter 2, the Jews sin against God in their self-righteousness. And that's really the key. When you look at the Gentiles, you're looking at a bunch of ungodly, unrighteous men and women who just do the scourge of this earth. When you look at the Jews, you see a bunch of ungodly people who are far away from God, who have their sin in their self-righteousness. At the end of the day, it's both the same. But the Jews look at it differently. And they're looking at the Jews and seeing in them in their unrighteousness but they look at them through their self-righteousness. The sin of unrighteousness 
is your fleshly sins. That's sin without God in your life. That's you going out and living an ungodly lifestyle, doing what you want to do without any knowledge of God in your life or caring what God thinks. That's the sin of unrighteousness. Ah, but the sin of self-righteousness. That's where we still do the ungodly thing, but we bring God into it. We try to make God part of our sin in that time. You know, it's no, it's no amazing thing to anybody who's done any time reading the Bible or studying the Bible that the Bible warns you over and over again about false religions, about false teachers, false prophets. That's the sins of self-righteousness. You're going to find that in Matthew chapter 23, and uh, it talks about the lowest hell. And you're going to find that, or it's talked about, the, excuse me, the greater damnation. You're going to go back to the book of Psalms in places like uh, Psalm 86, Psalm 63, and you're going to find where it talks about the lowest hell. Now, what's that all that talking about? There is a greater damnation. There is a greater damnation for the leaders of false religions who have their unrighteousness bound up within their self-righteousness. Now, what am I saying? I'm saying if you've got to go to hell, then I don't, I don't recommend that you do. But if you're just bound and determined to get there, if you're just determined you're going to go, you're better off going as a drunken fornicator drug addict than a religious leader that damns other people's souls to hell by your false teaching and your self-righteousness. Now, to me, I don't understand what I just said. I mean, I do, but I don't understand this thing about a greater damnation. To me, what difference it is if you burn at 10,000 degrees or 20,000 degrees? I mean, damnation is damnation. But he said there is a lowest hell. And he says there is a greater damnation. And in the Bible, it's reserved for men and women who hold their ungodliness, their unrighteousness, within their self-righteousness. And uh, I got some ideas on that. It's... It, it's probably so scary that I wouldn't even tell you this morning with the people that are here, but uh, there is a greater damnation and there is a lowest hell, and the Bible always puts it in the context of self-righteous people who want to hold their unrighteousness, drag God into their sin, justify their ungodliness, their unrighteousness through their self-righteousness and try to make God part of the party. And, of course, the Bible's full of that. Now, you and I need to know this. Because even though our ministry here is based on Gentiles primarily, <clears throat> this is why you need to know this material of chapter 2, there are some Jews that we will get saved in time. And we need to see how God sees them and how God thinks about them. Now, this is a great chapter in itself. In fact, it's three great chapters in itself when we get into chapter 9, 10, and 11. But he says in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, and let me jump ahead just for a second, he says, Paul speaking to us, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. What does he mean by that? What does he mean when Paul is talking to the New Testament Christians and he says about the nation of Israel, is blindness in part has happened to Israel? I'll tell you what he's saying. He's telling us that right now Israel's in darkness. Right now, because they have rejected the Messiah, they killed him. Right now, because they rejected the kingdom of heaven when it was brought to them. Right now, basically, Israel is blind. Spiritually blind. 
But the Bible says they're not totally blind. He says blindness in part. You know why? Because we can still win some Jews to Christ. So they're not totally blind. God allows some of the nation of Israel to see Christ as the true Messiah and to step out of the Jewish faith and embrace the New Testament Christianity of the Gentiles and become a Christian. Doesn't happen very often, but it happens. And that's what he means there, and you need to know these things. That's why he means there blindness in part. What he's doing in chapter 11, and it ties in with where we're at, what he's doing in chapter 11 is he's, he's telling the church, you and me, you better understand how God looks at the Jew. Because you don't want to fall into the trap that you make the nation of Israel your enemy. Now he goes in and tells us there in Romans chapter 11, he tells us that they are going to be my enemy. He says in verse 28, he says that for the gospel's sake, they're going to be my enemy. Jews want nothing to do with what I'm preaching about today. The Jews want nothing to do with Christ. The Jews look at you and I, and they look at you and I as Gentiles with disdain, disgust. They want nothing to do. And as far as the gospel's concerned, they are your enemy and my enemy by their choice, by their choosing. But we that have the Word of God who understand the whole picture of what God is doing, we're never to fall into that trap. You know, God's people do that a lot. Just because somebody, somebody doesn't like you, you feel like you've got to not like them. And that's the way we are. And he says the Jews, for the gospel's sake, might be your enemy, but you make sure you don't ever become their enemy. And, of course, you know our stand uh, uh, as, the, uh, as a, as a Bible-believing church on the nation of Israel. You know where we stand on it. And we'll talk about it even more this morning as we go through. But i got to say, once you understand that great truth, it opens up not only things about our own ministry, but it opens up the world events that are around you. And you're seeing that basically... Why the, We're going to talk about today, first of all, why the Gentiles hate the Jews. Why do they hate the nation of Israel? And then why a Christian should not, see? The Jews' problem is their self-righteousness, and with that self-righteousness comes an arrogance that's unbelievable. They are the most arrogant people you have ever met in your life. Now, I'm not talking about the, the copycat Jews. I'm not talking about most of the Jews that you probably know. Most of the Jews that you say, well, I work with a Jew, you probably work with a person who says they're a Jew, who maybe fools around with the Jewish faith, but you don't work with a real Jew. It's like I meet a lot of people that say, well, I'm a Christian. In your own mind, you're a Christian. You're the farthest thing you could ever have from what the Bible defines a Christian to be. When you find somebody that says, oh, I'm Jewish, they're talking about in their mind that they saw Ben-Hur one time and decided they were going to be a Jew. And probably how they like the chariot race. I'm not talking about that. If you found a real Orthodox Jew, you'd have to go to Jerusalem. If you found a real Orthodox Jew, you would know that they are different, and you would know that they care nothing about uh, the Gentiles. And you know that Gentiles care nothing about them. They've always persecuted them, and they persecute them because of their arrogance. And without a doubt, they are the most hated nation on this planet and have been forever. The idea of anti-Semitism against the, the Jews is across this country and across this world. And uh, I'll 
telling you right now that uh, uh, as you lay this thing out and you see it, once you understand what God is doing with the Jews and how this thing fits in, uh, you'll better understand the current events that's what's going on around you. They're hated by every nation and by every religion down through history except England for a brief period of time and America still today. But England turned her back on the Jew around 1900. And America, even though our national policy is pro-Israel, will turn their back on the nation of Israel. Now, you wait till Barack Obama gets in the White House. You say, oh, you shouldn't, you're turning this into a political. I'm telling you to vote for the boy right now. I'm all for him getting in. Put him in. You know why? When he gets in, this thing is on its way out. Put the guy in. I'm all for it, man. Put him in. Vote for him. I'm going to get a banner up here. Vote for Barack Obama. Put him in. You know, I, oh, the big flap, oh, the big flap over his pastor, you know, and all the things he was saying. You know what? I don't really care about anything that the guy said except, did you ever catch his take on the nation of Israel? He hates the nation of Israel. There's a man who claims to be a Christian standing up in a pulpit and telling his congregation that the Jews ought to be wiped off the face of the planet. Now, that's anti-Semitism. And that's where this is going. Now, let me ask you a question. Forget the news media. If you come to my church 20-some years, hear me preach every Sunday, aren't you going to kind of pick up some of my ideas about things? Uh, maybe that's just me. How many have been coming here four years or, or four, at least four years? Let me see your hand. Have you picked up anything that you believe that you didn't believe when you came? Do you believe now because I taught it to you? Are we home? Hello? What makes you think, what makes you think that he goes, that some of that stuff doesn't rub off on him? Uh, and I'm telling you, you watch this thing happen. I'm all for it. This is not a against Obama campaign. Put him in. I'm for it. I'm for it. I think that this thing has to, because I'll tell you what, if you know your Bible, you know America has to go against the Jew. And if you put Hillary in, she's going to be so busy chasing Bill around the White House to see where he's at, she will not have time to make that alliance. Get it where you can. Our best bet of getting home to heaven by, by six months after the election is Barack Obama. You want to go home to heaven? Not half of you. You want to go home to heaven? I'm telling you how to do it. I'm telling you how to do it. England took him in. England rejected them. America took them in, and we're going to reject them. The only group down through history that have never rejected the groups, Jews, is the Bible-believing Christians, you and me, because we understand the book of Romans. You go on the web today, get on the website sometime, and, and, and just go through and look at the websites that are dedicated to the hatred of the Jews, connecting them to every conspiracy on the face of this planet. All my life I grew up hearing about the Jewish world banker system who secretly someplace run all the things of the world. And they, they, they make us have a depression. They make us into a recession. They make all the things happen. These great Jewish bankers who own the world are behind the world pulling the strings and we got to get rid of them. I'll tell you something else. The Illuminati, the Wilderberg, that was a Jewish family in Europe. The Rothschilds, another Jewish family in Europe. They have been built up and villainized as men and women who have, who have literally taken over the world. 
behind the scenes. Thousand conspiracies all aimed at the Jews. Thousand books on how they really control the world. Why, back in the 1950s, a guy in, in uh, Ted Garter Armstrong come up with a new teaching called British Israelism. You know what he taught? He taught that the Jews in Jerusalem were not the real Jews. He taught that you and me as white Anglo-Saxons were the real Jews. And the way they get that is they go that thing that, that Mary uh, had, uh, other, or, uh, or uh, Jesus was married and had a, had a child, and they snuck his child out, and lo and behold, Mary and, and everybody winds up in Scotland. And so the real line of Christ and the real Jews are you and me, the Gentiles. You know why they say that? Because they hate the Jews. They hate the Jews. And that's the way this world goes. They hate them. Now, they hate them because of their arrogance and their self-righteousness. I love anybody who's arrogant and self-righteousness, especially the Jews. Boy, I know why they are. I know why they look down at me and turn up their nose. I understand why they do. Because that's where they're at. Their unrighteousness lies within their self-righteousness. And the attitude that comes from the fact that they are God's chosen people. And they don't even know it. They have lost the concept of God so long ago. They are now have that form of godliness but deny the power thereof. They, they, they still have the blessings of God on them even though they hate God. Even though that God, they want, they, God has, they have nothing to do with God in a true biblical sense. They are as far away from God as they ever could get in a true biblical sense. They do not even resemble the nation of Israel the way it was in the Old Testament. In spite of that, God has got His hand on them. Because they are God's chosen people. God chose them out of the Old Testament. He called Abraham out of the earth of Chaldees. And he brought him from that place to a land that he gave him. And he made some unconditional promises to that Jew. And he said, I'm going to give you this land. It's going to be yours. And you know what? If you don't do what's right, I'm going to slap you six ways from Sunday. But you're always going to be my people. We get caught up in this being slapped from six days from Sunday and thinking that God's finished with them. Not finished with them not finished with them all. There's a little book you got to get. Now, I don't even know where to find this. I, 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 my whole life has been finding books like these that this little thing that you can read in 40 minutes, two days for some of you, <clears throat> this little book right here <clears throat> is what I look for in life. Somebody took the time, <clears throat> somebody took the time to take the whole history of the Jew, everything that I need, from the beginning to the end, and put it in 96 pages a big print and nice pictures. I love the pictures. It runs through the whole concept. It runs through the covenant people, the promise and privilege, the nation that refused to die, oh, the Greek warriors and Roman legionnaires, a light in the dark ages, the Renaissance and Enlightenment, the modern age, Palestine revisited, and tribulation and triumph. Wow! It's all in that little 96-page book. And I think it's from the radio Bible class of the air. I think that was probably given away free years ago. You probably find it on the Internet for two cents. It's worth a million dollars. It'll save you two years of studying it out. It's all right there. In a little book like that called those irrepressible Jews. You betcha they're irrepressible. And the reason why they are is because God chose them and they're still God's people. 
And they got an arrogance and a self-righteous attitude that comes from that fact. And, uh, and even though they don't have anything to do with God, and see, Gentiles see this. The Jews have an unbelievable way of surviving. You know what got him in trouble in World War II? I'll tell you what got him in trouble. God has built into them the ability to survive when no other nation can survive. And what happened is, at the end of World War I, Germany has to pay for the whole war debt. I mean, umpteen trillions of dollars. Germany's bankrupt. Europe had just come out of the war that would end all war. Yeah, right. The whole nation of Europe, or the whole continent of Europe is in financial disarray. Germany is busted. In the 1920s and the 30s that followed, you'll find that the depression in Germany was so great that it took six million Reichmarks to buy a loaf of bread. It's such an incredible period of time. The Jews were, or the Germans were being made to pay for everything that the leaders did in World War I. And obviously it fell on the people. And they're, they're, they're going through severe times where they can't buy food, there's no fire, there's no coal, there's nothing to keep them warm. And here the Jews are during that period of time living high in the hog. The Jews, they were never affected by the Depression. Hey, when Himmler put them in uh, Mauthausen and Treblinka and Dachau and, and Auschwitz, you know what they did after they killed them? Sometime before they killed them. You know what they did? They pulled the gold out of their teeth. In a depression, when it took six million Reichmarks to buy a loaf of bread, the Jews were going to the dentist and saying, put gold in my mouth. They've always survived. They've always had a way to get through when nobody else could get through. And you know what? Hitler saw that. Hitler saw his people. Hitler come up in World War I, a corporal got gassed in the Battle of the Marne and, and come back to his land with everything in disarray, made to pay the, the, the war costs, and he was down there looking around with nothing to eat and people in disarray, and then he saw these Jews walking around with having shops and buying up whole city blocks and, and putting gold in their mouth, and he says to himself, the trouble in Europe is that Jew. And if I ever get a chance to eradicate Europe, of those Jews, I'll do it. You know what he did when he got in power in 1933? I'll tell you what he did. First thing he introduced in all the school system was the movies showing that the... and I mean, I've seen them where you got 50 million rats running down the street. Big rats, big tails. And they're walking down there and it looked like there are just hundreds of them. And then they're telling little school kids, these are where the Jews come from. They're vermin. You brainwash them. Over and over and over. It's no wonder they had a way to gas six million of them. They had been, they had been, they had been conditioned to look at the Jew, the nation of Israel, and, and associate them with rats, vermin, something that was subhuman. I've seen pictures in school where they're taking a skull of an Aryan, uh, Aryan German and the skull of a Jew. And they're taking these little pinchers that measure things and they're showing the kids how that the skull uh, is different on a, on a German than it is to the Jew. That they're subhuman. That they come from rats. That's what they were doing in Europe in the 20th century. That's what they were doing. You know why? Because they saw the Jew in the midst of economic depression. They saw that he could survive. He made money. He was, he was above everybody else. And they didn't like it. 
And the Jew would look at him and, with that arrogant attitude and act like they deserve that. Those irrepressible Jews. No other ancient culture or nation has survived. You know, you go to Egypt and you go down in the pyramid down there and you're trying the tombs of, uh, you know, uh, this great pharaoh down here. And they got all these hieroglyphics on the walls. Even the Egyptians don't know what it says. If you would say to the Egyptianologist, what is this? Who is this guy here? He'd say, well, we don't know for sure. They don't even know about their own culture. They can't even read the hieroglyphics on the walls. Where are the Hittites today? Where are the Babylonians? Where are, the, where are all those ancient nations? Where are the Ammonites? Where are all the Hittites? Where are they at today? They're all gone. Their culture's gone. Their nations are gone. There's only one that has survived through the ancient time. I guarantee you a rabbi in Jerusalem could take that Old Testament and run his genealogy right back to Adam and Eve. They know where they've come from. You know why? They've survived intact as a culture and as a nation. Hear anybody speaking Babylonian today? How about Egyptian? I hear a lot of people babbling, but not a Babylonian. How about nobody speaks Hittite? You realize when a Greek scholar tells you that you need to learn Greek, it's not the same Greek that they speak in Greece today. Greek's a dead language. Greek's a dead language. Egyptian's a dead language. There's only one ancient language that has survived down through history. Hebrew. God in the book of Genesis separated them from all the other nations. And then he built the whole world system around the Jew. The illustration in Deuteronomy chapter 32 where he said, God is like a mother eagle and all the nation of Israel is like her little, her little eaglets. And she, eaglets, I don't know if that's right or not. But she puts her wings over those little eagles, protects them. Boy, she has. She has. And by the way, just to throw this in, the last thing you want to mess with is a mother eagle with her little eaglets. I think I just put a new world in English language, Gray. Ray keeps the word, he writes my good words down and then sneaks around and uses them behind my back. Eaglet, get it? I don't know how to spell it, but use it. I got the one right here. Let me show you this, Ray. How about that one, huh? Yeah, that's a good one. I'm saving that one. Saving that one. Now, God said to all the other Gentiles nations, all the other nations, God said to them, you know what? He said to Abraham, he says that if you're going to get blessed as a Gentile, you've got to get your blessing through the nation of Israel. You think Gentiles like that? In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, he said all the families of the earth got to be blessed through them. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 8, or 18, 18, he said all the nations. You know what? The average child of God sees over here in Genesis 12 when it says families, sees over in 18 where it says nations, and they don't even understand why he used families here and nations here. One of the greatest concepts in the Bible. Then he divided the whole planet into 12 sections, Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 28, Acts chapter 18, verse 27. And God's whole plan down through the ages, past, present, and future, runs around that Jew. And they add insult to injury. God discriminated against every Gentile nation on planet Earth by giving them special treatment. God gave them things that He gave no other nation on Earth. We're, we're now going to boycott the Olympics in China. Personally, I think you've got to boycott all the Olympics. 
but that's just me. We're going to boycott the Olympics in China because of human rights issues. Now, I'm, I, 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 I'm with everybody. I, think, I don't think people ought to be tortured. I don't think people ought to be, ought to be hung upside down and, and whipped and beaten. I don't think people ought to be, go through all the terrible things that they go through on earth. But at the same token, if we wouldn't have dumped God Genesis chapter 2, it wouldn't have happened. We like to forget those things. But you talk about somebody, God violates every nation's human rights on planet earth in the Old Testament. You want a good violation of human rights? God tells the nation of Israel, you take this town when you go in. You kill every man. You kill every woman. You kill every child. You kill every animal. Kill them all. That's a good violation of human rights. He violated their civil rights. Deuteronomy chapter 14. He violated their, he gave them religious rights he didn't give anybody else in Romans chapter 9. He gave them material blessings that he never gave anybody else in Amos chapter 9. And then when God was asked to compare the Gentiles to Jews, if that wasn't enough, he says, you want a good comparison? Jacob, Israel, have I loved. Esau, have I hated. Wow. And if that wasn't enough, when God decided to give the Bible to the world, it was the Jews that got the oracles of God. No, Gentiles. Now, you see, the Jews know that. Or maybe they don't know that like we know that. But they know that they keep surviving. They look at all the other nations that have tried to wipe them out, and they're nowhere to be found. Hitler had a final solution. But in reality, it was his final solution. Where's he at today? By the end of World War II, the Jews, the Jews have been killed down on planet Earth to about 8 million people, not even the population of New York. All down through history, the Gentiles have tried to wipe them out, tried to get rid of them, tried to kill them. And they just can't be stopped. Now that's illustrated in your Bible in a couple of ways. When God met with Moses up there on Mount Sinai, he met with him through a burning bush. And Moses looked at that bush, and that bush was on fire. And it was speaking to him. But it was never being consumed it was, being, it was burning, but it wasn't being consumed. The reason why God picked that bush and put it on fire and it burned, but it never consumed is because Israel is going to get burned, but she's never going to be consumed. Did you see that? That's what Gentiles don't like. If I wasn't a saved man, I wouldn't like it. That's why you go to high school and a kid's a Jew, they call him a Jew boy. They make fun of his nose or his ears. I saw German SS troopers in Germany, uh, in Poland, and in Czechoslovakia, where you had these Jews that wore their hair straight down and kind of like piglet tails or whatever you call them, and the beards the same way, and they'd go up with a lighter and set them on fire and watch and laugh while they burned. They hated them. And they hated them because they had an arrogance. And their arrogance came because of the fact they're God-chosen people. They don't know it. They don't know God. They don't know Christ. That's okay. The book behind the scenes here is the book of Esther. You know what Esther does? Esther shows you the Jews getting the hand of God in their life and not even knowing it. And you don't... Esther's the only book in the Bible. The only book in the Bible where the word God is not found anywhere in the book. 
only book in the Bible other than Song of Solomon, and there's a reason for that too. But Esther's the only book in the Bible where from beginning to end you do not find the name of God mentioned, anything about God mentioned, not a thing about God. Only book in the Bible. And yet when you read it, God's behind the scenes in every chapter of the book of Esther. God's orchestrating the events for the Jews to get back. He's working through the powers that be to, to create the circumstances. He puts the right man in the right place at the right time. He puts Esther in the right place at the right time. And everything works out and God gets his people back. You know what Esther's a picture of? It's a picture of the time we're living today. Jews have no idea what God's doing. God has got a mandate. And whether you ain't figured it out yet, that mandate is for his son to come back in Jerusalem and sit down on the throne of God and be crowned king of kings and lord of lords. And that's where it's headed. That's why this country's the way it is. Those remarks I made about Barack Obama and our world and our political system, they're not from, a, they're not from somebody who is sarcastic about our country. They're somebody who is a realist about our country. I know where this thing's going. I read the last chapter of the book. I know how it ends. This thing is headed for Armageddon. It's heading for God to come back and sit down in the throne and the Jews to get the land back, to get the throne back, to get the kingdom back. And you know what? All the Gentiles got to come in the back door. Now, Gentiles don't like that. If I wasn't saved, didn't know my Bible, I wouldn't like that. You ever notice how all the religions, not just the nations, how they hate and try to replace the Jews? Now, there's a real science behind this. You know, it wasn't until Vatican II in the 70s when the Roman Catholic Church officially absolved the Jews of being the killers of Christ. That came out in Vatican II. In Vatican II, Pope Pepperoni Pius XVI got up there and said, all you who were the Jew killers, because that's for 2,000 years, they were, they were called Jews by the Roman Catholics, were called the killers of Christ. Jew killers. They hated the Jews because they killed Christ. And they persecuted them because of that. And they put them through great parallel. It all talks about it in our little book there, if you can get a copy of it. And during that period of time, up to Vatican II, and in Vatican II, when the world was changing, and the human rights scene, and the civil rights scene, and they wanted to put on another foray of who they really were, they, they absolved the Jews of all of their problems of killing the Lord Jesus Christ. Theologians and the scholars, they can't handle that Bible. You know why? I told you last week, that Bible is a Jewish book. Every writer in it is a Jew. That Bible came from a Jewish stock, from a Jewish faith, right on down the line. And when they first called Christian Antioch, the New Testament they got came from a Jew, the Apostle Paul. You know why the theologians and a lot of pastors don't want you to read a King James Bible? It's the only Bible in the world today that is purely from the Jewish Bible and a Jewish concept. You get an AIV, an NIV, or anything else, it has been reworked by the Gentiles in Alexandria, Egypt. They can't stand it. You ever notice the Gentile religions of the world? You ever notice over in Europe the Lutheran church, Presbyterian church, the Anglican church? You know what they all teach? They all teach amillennialism or either that or postmillennialism. You know what that means? That means that Jesus Christ isn't coming back. That means that there's going to be no visible second coming or return. There's going to be no Jew in the millennium. They're going to get the millennium. You know why? Because they think they've replaced the Jews. That's why. You ever look at the American cults, Mormonism, Jehovah Witnessism, Church of Christ, 
seven-day disadvantages, charismatics. You know what they all have in common? Every one of them. Every one of them have one thing in common. They all take something that God gave to the Jew and put it on themselves and say, we are the only true faith. You talk to a Jehovah Witness today, he'd say that nobody outside of Jehovah Witness faith has ever got a chance to go into heaven. That's what God said about the Jew in the Old Testament. You talk, to a, you talk to a Mormon today, you know what he'd tell you? Outside the Mormon church, there's no salvation anywhere. You talk to a church of Christ, outside the church of Christ, no salvation anywhere. You talk to a, a Roman Catholic, no, no salvation outside our church. Well, I got news for you. The Bible says salvation, John chapter 4, is of the Jew. And you can forget the Roman Catholic Church, the Moron Church, the seven-day disadvantage, and the Charismatics, and everybody else. There's no salvation outside the Jew. Forget the church. But that's where we are, see? I'm glad I'm not a Gentile anymore. Boy, I'm glad I got the lights turned on. I mean, you go out and look at the sky, and you look at the newspaper, and it says, oh, the economic problems. Hey, if you ain't got it figured out yet, God gave you... And I probably even shouldn't tell you this because some of you are going to pass out right here. Fail, get some oxygen. We're going to lose some right now. I shouldn't even tell you this. You're out there. You're every day. You check your 401K and your 66.3 and your all that other stuff and, and your 501s. Oh, that's, those are blue jeans. And, and, and you, you look at all this stuff and you're worried about this. I got news for you. Hey, if you ain't figured it out yet, this is the benefit of a Bible. The, the mold's already been set. The greatest type of Antichrist in the 20th century was one Adolf Hitler. He, God gave you one, gave you one last shot. You know what Adolf Hitler's party number was on his official party card? It was 555. If you go look at the archives and you find that his party card for the National Socialist Republic or when he started there in 1933, you will find that on his card, on his Nazi card, his official identification number was 555. You know why? Because the next one is going to be 666. He's the last shot you got of God showing anybody that may be remotely paying attention of where we're at today. You know what Adolf Hitler, the great last type of Antichrist, came to power out of? He came to power out of a depression in Europe that made anything we went through in the 1920s look like a campfire girl picnic. This country is headed for it. You better get ready to lose some weight. You better get ready to lose everything you got. The die has been cast. The greatest type. Oh, and before 555, there was a 444 in history. And before there was a 444, there was a 333 in history. And before there was a 333, there was a 222. All the way back to 111. He's the last one. God gave you one, two, three, four, five, and then the real one's coming, 666. And this country is going to lose everything it's got. You're going to put in like Barack or somebody like Hillary or maybe even somebody like the other guy, whatever his name is. And you know what you're going to get? You look around this world. Look around this country. We're in, we're in a mess. Absolute mess. They can't fix one problem in this country. They can't get anything done. 
There, the world is dying and messed up. People are starving to death by the millions. We are just, we are just, we can't get our roads fixed. We can't get nothing in government to work. Our schools are a mess. And what our Congress is doing is holding the sessions to find out if some ball player took steroids or not. Now, what is wrong with that picture? Somebody says, we're in a recession. Somebody says, no, we're going to be in a depression. You know what the definition of those are? A recession is when you're out of work. A depression is when I'm out of work. <laughs> That's how that plays out. <laughs> we're in a mess. We're in absolute mess. Nothing's going to get fixed. There's nobody, nobody in government. Nobody on the horizon, no candidates, nobody around the world that can solve our problem. We're de we are dependent on oil. We talk about, well, look at the airlines. We're going to hold out 50,000 people flying on 600 because the little straps are a quarter of an inch off. I'll tell you who's more than a quarter inch off and it isn't the straps. We're nuts. America, as far as I'm concerned, is an insane asylum run by the inmates. And you and your, us and our, with all that we've got, all our affluence, all that we have, go into a grocery store and boy, you're overwhelmed. 69,000 different loaves of bread, all made by somebody different. Wheat germ, no germ, no wheat. Hot dog buns, hamburg buns, six-pack, eight-pack, economy 12-pack. You can go down the line. You walk into the, walk into, into the mall. Lipstick, 9,443 shades. Pick your color. You walk into the men's department. I want a pair of jeans. When I got, when I went in and bought jeans, you got one kind. They were blue, they were stiff, they were starchy, and until they were washed four or five hundred times, they were ugly. Now you pay $120 to get jeans that are already wore out. Yeah. Where would you like your hole, sir? I don't understand it. We're showing we want it now. And that's the way we've been. We have been set up. You in America can ha and have, me too, we're spoiled. We've got everything we want as long as we want. You know what? Now we're going to turn off the spigot and the gas is going to dry up. And for the first time in your life, you're going to have to decide whether to go to church or go see Aunt Edna. You're going to have to decide I'm going to do this or I'm going to go. And I'll tell you right now, I'll tell you right now, that this thing, if we get delayed too long or getting in the building, we won't need another building. It'll cut this church in half, maybe more than that. And I think that's a good thing. See, you look at it and say, oh, that'd be a tragedy. I think the greatest thing in the world is for everybody that's here today, they have to choose to be here over something else. I think that's the greatest thing that could happen to any of us. You know why? Because we got too much. We all do. Talking about me too. I mean, we, and, and, and God is going to bring that to a crashing end. 
The greatest picture you ever had and I ever had is the Antichrist. The last one we got comes out of a desperate economic situation when the whole continent of Europe is starving to death. We can talk about the Jews and their self-righteousness all we want, but boy, come and look at the Baptists. That's why the Jews are hated. Now Israel takes all of the things that God has given them, and they don't have a clue. They don't see God behind the scenes. And they develop that arrogant attitude of self-righteousness, and they look down at disdain at the Gentiles. In the Old Testament, the Gentiles are called dogs. Uncircumcised dogs. Well, one place in 1 Kings chapter 14, he talks about Gentiles. Like in the dogs, when they go to the bathroom, they lift their leg on a wall. I'm trying to spare you the word. But I love to cuss and use the Bible to validate it. <laughs> do you ever notice that that's what dogs do? Male dogs? You take you get your female dog out there, let's go over there and go to the bathroom. But no, 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 no. Not my dog that's a male dog. He likes two things, the side of the house or my hubcaps on my car. And my dog just can't. We we like normal dogs. My dog has to have industrial strength, acid burning, whatever. You come to my back house, he, and he picks the same spot all the time. And, it, you know, you see this discoloration all on the house. If I ever sell the house, somebody's going to say, what's that? I'm going to say, well, they did nuclear bomb test back here in the 40s, and I think that's probably the radiation. I can't get it off. It eats the paint. I yell at him. You know what he says back to me? Hey, 1 Kings 14, this is what I'm all about. Don't bother me. That's what dogs do. They liken Gentiles to that. How would you like to be a Gentile and call that? How would somebody look at you and say, you're an uncircumcised dog? Well, you're a dog. Oh, they don't like it. I wouldn't like it if I wasn't saved. I love it now because I know where this thing's going. You see, they look at the Gentiles in their unrighteousness and they judge them in Israel's self-righteousness. Now with that introduction, look at Romans chapter 2 verse 1. He says, Therefore thou art excusable, O man. Now when you find that word, O man, in your Bible, you go back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find that Israel is always pictured to a man. You'll find back there in Matthew chapter 12, verse 43, the Bible says an unclean spirit goeth out of a man. And then down around verse 44, 45, it tells you that man is the nation of Israel. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, it says, no, no man can serve two masters. That man there, doctrinally, is Israel who's trying to serve two masters. Matthew 7, 24, it says, A wise man built his house upon a rock, and a foolish man built his house. That's Israel, historically. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 2, that they brought Jesus, a man sick with a palsy. That's a picture of Israel's spiritual condition in, at the first coming of Christ. Nicodemus was told, except a man. Did you ever notice that Jesus said that? He didn't say to Nicodemus, you got to be born again. He said, except a man be born again. He never made the quotation directly to Nicodemus. You know why? Because Nicodemus couldn't have got born again if a life depended on it. Holy Spirit of God hadn't even come yet. 
That man that he's talking to Nicodemus, who's a ruler of the Jews, that man is the nation of Israel. He's always likened to a man. Sometimes it's likened to a wife. But here it says, it says, O man, thou art an excusable, O man. And he's talking about the Jew. Therefore thou art excusable, O man, whoso thou, whosoever thou that art judge, that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doeth the same things. Now this is the Jews. The Jews look at the Gentiles in their unrighteousness, and even though the Jews are unrighteous themselves, they judge the Gentiles in their self-righteousness. You ever notice God's people do that too? And here's another great format for you. And you want to remember this. Where the Gentiles teach the Jews unrighteousness, remember I showed you last week in chapter 1 where they got their false religion from the Gentiles? Where the Jews got entangled with the Gentiles and they learned Gentiles' unrighteousness. Where the Jews get involved with the Gentiles in the church age, we learn their self-righteousness. And that's why you find some of God's people that are so self-righteous. Judging all the time. And God's people are famous for it. Jews do it. God's people do it. You know why? Because we're all kin to the same things when we get involved and we get into that Bible and the same problems they have are the same problems we have. You take the average child of God. Come to a service on Sunday morning. And we're all guilty of this. You know what happens? I'll tell you what happens. The moment you leave the house, you start the automatic judging process. Boy, it's awful cold out today. Boy, I hate this weather. Can't wait till spring. You start driving on the road. Where'd daddy to get his license? Oh, that's my ex-wife. Now I know where she got her license. You're walking down there. Well, well I, hope, I hope Bob's got a good sermon this morning. Drove in the parking lot. Well, look at that. Somebody took my parking place. I always park there. Don't they know I don't park there? Why didn't somebody out there with a big orange cone for me? Okay. Yeah, you can wear it on your head and walk around. We'll know exactly who you are. They come in there and they say, oh, place is dirty today. Oh, too hot. Too cold. Oh, I don't like who's in the nursery. Oh, I don't like this. Oh, I don't like that. You know what we do? We go from day up to sun, sun up to sundown. We judge everything in the world except ourselves. That's what we do. That's what we do. It's exactly what we do. Now, you young Christians, let me tell you something. Let me talk to you because you're going to face this. And this is a great lesson to learn this on. And boy, it's right in the middle of the Jews because the Gentiles, they're in unrighteousness. The Jews are also in righteousness, but because they got all the blessings of God, they've developed their own self-righteousness. And you're going to deal with two kinds of people. If you're going to work with people, if you're going to even go through life, people are going to fall into two categories. Not three, two. You're going to find unrighteous people, and you have to work with them all the time. Or you're going to find self-righteous people. And sometimes you've got to work with them all the time. You won't find a third. There's, there's only two. And when you start to deal with people, you hear it all the time. Their favorite expression of self-righteous people is, don't judge me. How many heard that? You go out there and you talk to your friend and try to tell my Lord, well, who are you to judge me? I deal with somebody that's got a problem in life and the first thing out of their mouth, well, well you know, what about so-and-so? How can you judge me? Now, you're faced with that all the time. And as a young Christian, if you're ever going to make any inroads in people's lives, you need to understand this great concept. 
Because this is a concept that will solve a lot of issues for you once you understand it. And we're about to delve into it now based on what we've looked at so far. Now, I want to explain to you a Christian's viewpoint of you judging somebody. And I want you to get this down. The nation of Israel does it, and the Gentiles do it also. You and I as Christians do it. But I'm telling you. Now, James chapter 4, and I get this thrown at me all the time. James chapter 4, verse 12, says that, Who art thou that judgest another? Oh, and the favorite one, Matthew 7, 1, Judge not lest you be judged. Now, other than the fact that James is written to the 12 tribes and Matthew's before the New Testament was into effect, ah, the Pauline epistles. You know what I want? You know what? Those verses don't apply to you. Let me tell you what Paul wrote about you and me judging. Now, I'll show you. I want to judge. I'll show you what to judge. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. He that is spiritual judgeth all things. Now, let me explain that to you, young Christians, because this is going to help you. As a Christian, I don't judge people. I don't have any right to judge people. I don't have any right whatsoever to judge anybody, period. Because you stand before God, good or bad. And I got enough problems in my life, I don't need to judge you, I got to take care of myself. So as a New Testament Christian, you and me now, we do not have the right to judge another person. Notice Paul didn't said, He that is spiritual judgeth all people. He said, Ye that are spiritual judgeth all things. Where I don't have a right to judge you as an individual, I do have a right to judge what you do in relationship to my walk with Christ. Nothing personal. Now, most people can't get that because they think when you... And you know, when you get saved, here's what happens. When you get saved and maybe you want to give up something or you don't want to go to the same old place or maybe you're just concerned about your friend's loss. You now know they're saved and you now know that you're saved, they're not and you're worried about them going to go into hell or you just now know that you can't go to those places anymore, you can't do those things, can't drink those things, can't smoke those things, can't take those things. You know how it goes. You now know that there's something different about you. You now know that there's something different about you that you can't go be there anymore. Now, Somebody else comes over to you and they say, hey, let's go do this. And you say, no, I can't do that. I'm a Christian. The first thing they're going to say is they're going to take offense because of the fact you think that, they, you think that they're not. Now, maybe they're not. I'm not judging them. I'm judging where I'm at, where I got to do with my life, my Christian life now. Those things aren't going to help me anymore. I'm not better than you. I'm not righteous, and you're not, in the sense of any better than you. I may have God's righteousness, but I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not any better than you are. We're still sinners. I'm just saved by grace. Baba said it the other night down at the mission. One of the greatest things I ever heard you say. The only great thing I ever heard you say, but it was a great thing. You, want to, you know where I'm going with it? Stand up and tell them. Stand up and tell them. And it better be the same thing or we're in trouble. Go ahead. Take the gum out of your mouth. Say it. Denounce it clearly. He said, I'm not better than you. I'm just better off than you. Now, see, he was preaching at the mission. The thing you've got to be careful of down there is you don't come off better than them. They don't have anything. 
And we get up there many, many times in our three-piece suits and all of our fancy gadgets and all that we have, you know, and we get up there and it's easy to, for them to take that in a condescending way. And we do it. Why don't we do it? Because we're not sensitive. We don't understand what I'm talking about today. I don't have a right to judge those men. Wouldn't be by the grace of God I'd be sitting next to them. I've been over to your house. When your wife cooked, God knows we eat some of the same stuff they have down there. Just kidding. Just kidding. And Bubba got up there, and, and I know, I watch them. Now, most of you do. I, I don't think anybody ever did a, a, a really bad job at this because I think you're all scared to kill you afterward. But everybody, but Bubba, he took it in hand. He, he just stood up to the plate and he took it, he, he nullified it right at the spot. Because he's up there, you know, and they love Bubba. You know, Bubba go down and sings for him, plays for him, you know, and they, they're always saying, hey, where's Bubba, you know, and, as, you know, and, I, and, and he got up there and he said, he said, you know what, I'm not better than you, I'm just better off than you. That's it. I don't have a right to judge anybody of who they are with God, but I do have a right to judge what I allow into my life for my relationship with God. And, and, and most people, they can't separate two, so they say, well, if you don't, won't do what I do, then you don't like me. That's not true. I don't have a right to judge you. You know what? If that's between you and God, that's between you and God. The bottom line is it doesn't work for me. And you're going to find, you're going to find, you know, that, that it, especially when you're dealing with your friends, don't fall into that trap. First of all, don't judge them. You don't have any right to judge your unsaved friends, but you do have a right to look at what they do and you say, where I'm at right now, that isn't going to help me, so I can't let that in my life. Now, if they have a tough time with that, I don't know what to tell you. But you never judge a people. In the ministry, if you ever get to that point where you're really working with people, this thing's going to come into play all the time. You have to make judgments in ministry. You have to make judgments in ministry. And it's one of those things where that you, you there's sometimes you have to deal with people. And people, who likes to be dealt with? Nobody. When it's bad, I don't like confrontation any more than anybody else does. But you know what? With the job comes the responsibility. And in all my life, you have to deal with people who get into places of leadership or responsibility and they, they fall short. Maybe they weren't ready for it. Maybe it's my fault. I never should have put them in to begin with. I'll take all the blame. And so when you, when you try to pull, get them out of that thing for their own good, you know what? That's what you get. Well, who you are to judge me? Well, look at so-and-so over here. I'm not judging you as a person. I love you. Once I fire you, we'll go out to eat and have a great time together. I'm not, it's not a personal thing. It's a thing that where your life is right now is not conducive where my ministry is. Because you're my friend, because you're my buddy, because of all these things, we can't just go on and let you keep damaging people. And you've got to learn. You never judge the individual. But you have a right. I have a right. to, to One of the four men in my life that is responsible for teaching me the Bible. i got four basic people in my life that taught me the Bible from four different angles, basically. One of them right now, is just about as screwed up in Bible doctrine as he can get. He believes that all the people, saved people, aren't going to go in the rapture. 
He even comes to the place where he's fully now believes in predestination and Calvinism. He's into the thing where he, uh, he thinks that maybe unsaved people will get a chance to get back in, get saved later on down the line. Now, I look at that guy, and you know what? I love him. If he wanted to go out and eat this afternoon, I'd take him out and buy his dinner. If he needed to stay at my house, he could stay at my house. If he wanted, to, he wanted me to, if he had a flat tire or he needed to use my car, I'd let him use it. Would I let him preach in my church? Absolutely not. I'm not judging him. My feelings for him doesn't change one bit. But where he's at right now and where he's at in his mind with the Word of God is not conducive where this is. And the Bible says God is not the author of confusion. When I let a leader, male or female, come into leadership and they straw confusion because they violate the principles, much as I love you, got to go. That's simple. I don't know what to tell you. And you have the same right in your life. You have to deal with people not based on judging them, but based on where you're at in your own relationship with the Lord. And that's what you got to do. It's, it's nothing personal. You never look at somebody and judge where they're at with God. That's not my job. My job is to look at my life, my ministry, and protect it and look for people who will protect the integrity of it just like I would. There's nothing personal. You see, the Jews' problem is simple, just like our problem. They've forgotten all that God has done for them, and now they've got their own little self-righteous world going. Now, here's why. I told you, you don't have a right to judge people. But you do have a right to judge the things that people do as it is to your own relationship with God. Now, let me show you why you don't have to judge people. And this is a great principle. And I live by this principle. And this is something you need to learn and live by. Here's the verse. This is the reason why the Jews don't have to judge the Gentiles. And this is the reason that you and I don't have to judge people. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth. Against them that commit such things. You know why I don't have to judge you? Because in time, the truth will come out who's right and who's wrong. The greatest thing I've ever learned in ministry is to be patient. When nothing else tells, when nobody else will tell, when everything is silent, the only thing that tells is time. And in time, it shows where everything really was. You know what we say? That is such a true fact. You know what we say? We say hindsight is twenty-twenty. You know why we say that? Because time reveals what was really there that you couldn't see when it all happened. And our job as Christians, what we always do is we jump right into the now. We don't learn to be patient to see how the thing plays itself out. And that's why I don't have a right to judge anybody. In time, it'll be very obvious. I won't have to tell anybody what's going on. I have a little thing. I had a lady, a girl, a number of years ago. And this has been a long time ago. And she came into my office, and, and she was a good kid. And she was going to marry an unsaved guy. And uh, I, 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 she came in to tell me about it. I, I made the fatal mistake. I tried to tell her why it was wrong. First of all, she didn't come in to ask my opinion. She came in to tell me if she was getting married. And that was my first fatal mistake. I entered in where she didn't invite me in. Well, when I told her why she shouldn't marry this unsaved guy, and I, I didn't even get to the verses, she was so upset with me, so mad at me, 
that the last thing I remember is she walked into my office and she slammed the door. You know how you got those panels up there? The panels went up. I mean, the wind, she crazy, you know. Five years later, quit coming to church, married this kid. Five years later, I get a call on the intercom. This girl wants to see me. Five years later, she comes back in and she sits down and she says, Bob, she says, she says I want to apologize to you. She says, you were absolutely right. She says, we got married. It was the worst disaster in my life. She says, I was saved. He was lost. I wanted to serve God. He wouldn't. I wouldn't listen to you. She says, the thing that bothered me all those times was the fact that, that what, I, what I said to you and how mean I was to you and how I slammed the door. She says, then the day I didn't go by that I regretted that I didn't listen to what you said or give you the opportunity to put input into my life. She says, I want you to know, I, I, and you know, by that time, I'd forgotten about it. I'd forgotten about it, moved on with 100,000 other things. She thought about it every day of her life. You see, I didn't have to judge her. The truth judged her in a much greater way than I ever could have. Now, when you come back like that, this is what I do as a Christian. This is what you do as a Christian. Nanny, 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 I hope you got it good. Get any bruises on the bow where he slapped you down the steps. No, absolutely not. See, just like I didn't judge her before, I don't judge her now. And that's why I tell you guys over and over again, I don't care what you've done, where you've been, whatever you've been into. It doesn't matter me a bit. All I care about is where you're at right now and doing what's right with God. And that's it. When nobody else tells, when nothing else tells, time will tell. Truth is the only thing I know in the world that has no expiration date on it. It just goes on and on and on and on. And it never cancels itself out. Maybe 10 years, maybe 5 years, maybe 20 years. But at the end of the day, right always prevails. Maybe not in my time, maybe not in your time, maybe not the way I would like it to, but you know what? There's something that, when, like I said, when nothing, this is why you don't have to judge. This is why you don't have to get caught into those things. This is why you don't have to get into, caught into personal things with people. If they want to have the personal things with you, fine. Don't have them with them. You don't judge people. You judge what they do. That's Israel's problem. In their own self-righteous, they're looking to Gentiles and they think they're terrible and they're doing the same thing. They're both unrighteous. One just got unrighteousness in a, a godless way. The other one's got self-righteousness in a godless way. You know what the reality test is for you? Let me ask you a question. Now this is, I love reality test. Because I'll tell you what, it's like I said a couple of weeks ago, we all become legends on our own mind. We all have a little bit of self-righteousness in us. We all do. I don't care how you try not to, we all do. Because we got a Jewish book. We got the Jewish, we, get, we got Jewish salvation of the Jew. We, got, they teach, we tell them on godliness, they teach us self-righteousness. So we pick it up, see. Now we had to fight against it and try to do what I'm telling you to do, but you know what? We're going to fail. But let me, I, I, this, is my, this is my own personal reality test. I, I have a bunch of them. And you know, I flunk them all the time, but I keep giving myself to them. But you know what? Let me ask you a question. Now, for, this is for people, and I always give you a break. For you, been, this is for, you can do what you want to do with this, but I'm talking about people who've been saved, oh, for, or coming into this church, involved with God four years or more. So if you're a visitor today, man, skate, man, no problem. If you're somebody who's been coming two years and you're really trying, this doesn't even apply. If you want to do it and play with it, whatever, and maybe some of you probably was, will fit in, but I'm, I, I always give you a chance. 
You know, I don't even, I don't expect anything out of you for five years. I just, I mean, I do, but I don't. I mean, I don't hold you in accountability factor. You got to learn what's going on. You got to get all this down. You got to get all the material down. I just give you a lot of grace in that because that's just what we got to do. But I look at it. Five years on, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. No quarter asked, no quarter given. Let me ask you a question. Have you a closer relationship with God now today than you did five years ago? Oh, I love it. I love it. I saw a head going up and down. Do you, are you, uh, do you have a closer relationship with God today than you did five years ago? Now, see, some of you didn't even think. Some of you, it was automatic. I love that. I love that. Now, that was the question. Now, here's the reality. See? Now, this reality is like when you go out on a spending bree and you use your credit card and you buy all kinds of stuff and you go home and you look at it and then 20 days later the bill comes and you say, uh-huh. Okay, here comes the, uh, sorry. But this is it. Do you have a closer relationship with God today than you did five years ago? And I watched you. I watched you. I just pointed purposely, scanned the crowd. I couldn't get you all in my perspective, but most everybody, most of it was affirmative on the thing. See, that's the way we are. And everybody five years or under, this doesn't apply to you. So don't take it personal. Don't get your feelings hurt. Don't whatever. But I, you people over, you need to get your feelings hurt. Because in our minds, we do, don't we? We really think we do. In our minds, we would actually say, yes, Bob, if I was to ask you individually, you'd say to me, yes, Bob, I do have a better, closer relationship with God than I did five years ago. Good. And lieu a light of that, do you give God more now than you did five years ago? Joe and I were talking this week. He asked me a great Bible question. He always does. He says, you know what? He says, I'm reading back through here where Abraham sacrificed and, um, and this guy sacrificed. And he says, he says there was, why were they sacrificing before the law? And that's an excellent question. And I said, well, Joe, I showed him a few other things. And I said, because bottom line is this, Joe, the greatest concept in the Bible is learning to sacrifice. That's why. Do you know sacrifice? Are you in a better, do you sacrifice now than you did five years ago? See, that's the, see, that's the reality. It's one thing to say, oh, yeah, I love him. But when it really gets down and the rubber hits the pavement, that's when it really, 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 you come back to point of reality. You know what God people is? We live in a world that's unrealistic, don't we? Sure, we do. And you know what happened with us? We get unrealistic expectations about ourselves. You know what this church is, besides a bunch of other things that we can't say in public? You know what it is? It's your reality check. Because I won't let you slide. And sometimes you don't like me for it. I don't care. I like you whether you like me or not. Well, I don't like all of you, but I like most of you. <laughs> but I like you whether you like me or not. Because I realize that my job is not a very easy job. My job is to go around and, and give you the reality test. Give myself the reality And I don't give you any test I don't take myself. The whole scope of that Bible is pointed to a self sacrifice of a man on the cross that gave up everything and cost him everything and he gave it, paid the price, never even quibbled about it. See how the reality comes in? You have a close relationship with God today than he did five years ago? Let me ask you a question. God have more of your time now to serve him than he did five years ago? Or are you still giving it out to him a little bit at a time? See, that's it. 
I wonder what you'd do if we were like most Baptist churches. Most Baptist churches have a service Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night Bible study, and or, uh, Thursday night visitation program. And well, I, I don't know what you. I don't even what you do. We have times two times a week. Do we meet with God? And some of you can't even make that in your schedule. And there was silence in heaven the space of a half an hour. Honey, this is what a turkey farm sounds like day after Thanksgiving. <laughs> have a closer relationship with God today than five years ago? Or are you more in debt or less in debt to God now than you were five years ago? Bible says we're to be debtors. Which way are you? Which way are you? Or you have more freedom up to do whatever God wants you to do? Or you got to work yourself to death for your own stupid choices? See? I mean, that's where it's at. There's the reality. We can talk about loving God. We can talk about, yes, I have a closer relationship than I did five years ago. But the reality is... Are you ministering more now than you were five years ago? Who are you ministering to? Can I, now, can I call on you now with total confidence in any given situation more than a good five years ago? Now, the answer to that is ask me. I'll be blunted and candid to you. Ask me sometimes you want to know. You know why some of you won't ask me? Because you'll know what I'm going to say. And you don't want to deal with it. You don't want to face it. But that's really the true test. Don't me stand up here and say... You sit down there and say, I have a closer, better relationship with God now than I did five years ago and not say yes to every one of these things. We're kidding ourselves. You have better control of your children and your family now than you did five years ago? It's very obvious to me that when we went through the child training thing, some of you didn't learn a thing. And I'm just going to throw this two cents in. You're going to have some real problem when your kids, when they get about 15, 16, 17 years of age. I watch them. You think I teach something that extensive and don't watch how you deal with your kids? It just went, whoo, right over your head. But, oh, I bet you you got the notes. I bet you you could pull up your notebook. I bet you you could take your Bible and show me all the notes. What good are they if they don't do anything to change what you do in life? Can I give it to them now, Ray? Can I do it? Sure. You stand up and do it. Wow, just like you're preaching. Greg gave me the greatest quote today, and I'm going to Just pretend you're preaching. Face the audience. Let them have it. Face the audience. Face the music. Say it. Go ahead. That is the greatest thing I've heard this year. That is the most incredible precept. It is so true. If you always do what you've always done, if you're not willing to change it, if you always do what you've always done and you're going to get what you always got, that's where we're at, boy. That's exactly where we're at. That's exactly where I'm at. Let me ask you this. Have a closer relationship with God today than you did five are you a Are you a better asset to this church today than you were five years ago or more of a liability? Hey, this is the reality. You see, I told you earlier, we as God's people, we judge everything else 
And when I make a statement like that, we say, well, yes, Bob. Oh, you should have saw the head. And maybe you're right. I don't know. I'm not calling you a liar. But I know human nature. It's one thing to say, oh, yes, I do. Oh, yes, I do. And then when the reality comes in, no, we don't. You see? I told you earlier, God's people judge everything in this world except themselves. We want to hold ourselves up that we've got the greatest relationship, but when you start asking the questions that really make the relationship work, not there. And I'm not saying it's not there for most of you. I think, but it is my job to do the things that you do in relationship to my life or your life, as your particular case, and my and, and my in my ministry. Someday I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to give an account. I mean, the ministry has to have standards. There has to be a things that can be allowed and not allowed. There has to be things that you can do and you can't do. I mean, it's just that simple. I don't know what else to tell you. I mean, if we're just going to do whatever we want to do, then, then what's the difference about this place? And you've heard me say it before. If you're just somebody to come to church, I mean, I don't have any control over you, and I, I just preach the Word of God, and, uh, you know, I just tell you what the Bible says. You've got to make up your own choice. But if you're somebody that aspires to be a leader in this church, you've got to do it better cleaner, stronger, and above board, better than everybody else in this place. That's what it takes. And I don't ask you to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself. You can't, you can't take advantage of people. You can't use people. You can't, you can't. I had a guy one time years ago, and I kicked his, oh, he, he, nicest guy in the world. Nicest guy in the world. He used the ministry to get into where the people were so he could use it to sell them what he was selling. And it wasn't very good stuff that he was selling. It had to cause a lot of problems. And I looked at him, same scenario. I pulled him aside and I said, what are you doing? This, is, this church, my class, is not your own happy hunting ground so you can make a million dollars. I said, I got people calling me all week saying that this is not right, this is not right. How do you minister? How do you ever stand up in front of people and say, follow me? If this was a restaurant and you deacons were the servers and the rest of these people were the people who, who eat in our restaurant and every time the people came into the restaurant and you waited on them, you were always trying to get something from them. Use them in some way. Make some kind of financial gain off of them. If you went to a restaurant and the waiter come up at the end of the day, you gave him a tip and you said, you know what, that's really not enough. How about a little more? Or, sir, you don't mind, I went ahead and filled in my own tip. $220, well, the meal's only $16.50. I know, times are tough right now. <laughs> Would you go back and eat there? This ministry is about one thing besides the Word of God. It isn't worth any, it isn't worth, it is not worth one dime past the integrity that it holds. The moment you breach the integrity of it, we're just like everybody else. Then we'll set up the little cookie trays back here and the little cake bakes and we'll make a little money this way and we'll do that. Oh, I got an idea. Let's just do Bible study every other night and have bingo one night. 
Better yet, let's put up some poker tables. Better yet, let's just, let's just, let's just, it, that's where it goes. This ministry has one thing that it has to stand on. The moment you lose that, you're out. It's its integrity. By the grace of God, give all the power that God gives me, I'll never violate that integrity. If I do, then I need to step down and somebody with integrity needs to come in. Just that simple. But at the same token, you're a leader in this church, you have to have that integrity. And if you don't, you step down. It's just that simple. Now, somebody, and that's this guy, when I called this guy on the carpet, you know what his thing was? Well, you're judging me. No, I said, no, you're wrong. I'm not judging you, but I am about a hair short of killing you. For you to take advantage, to put yourself in a position in my ministry where you financially made gain off of my people under the context of being a leader in this church, no, no. Judging you is way low short of the mark of what I'm doing with you. But that was his first thing. Well, you're judging me. You're judging me. It's like, what are you judging me for? Let me do what I want to do in your ministry. Yeah, well, you go get your own place and you do whatever you want to do with there. But this is the Jews' problem. God has given them everything. And because he's given them everything, they've got self-righteous and spoiled. That's our problem. God has given us everything. And because he's given us everything, we want more. We're not satisfied with what we have. We want more. And we get to that little self-righteous mode in our mind where, oh, I'm as close to God as I can get. Yeah, right. I hate things like that in the Bible. I got about nine of them. And the, you don't call me with your problems on the day I'm taking one of those tests myself. You, too, you confuse the two because you don't know your Bible very well, or at the worst case, you're just dishonest with yourself. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, going in with what we talked about, if he that is spiritual judge at all things, he says this, Which things also we speak, not in the words which man wisdom teacheth, but with the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. There it is. Lining your life up with the things in this book. Not by man's wisdom, not by what man tells you, not by what your own philosophy of life is. This Bible's a manual. It's a manual for the Jews. They reject it. They got self-righteous. Now they judge the Gentiles. It's a manual for you and for me. We reject it. We get self-righteous. So then we judge each other. It's a manual not for you to judge everybody else. It's a manual for you and I to judge ourselves. You know how you judge yourself? Spiritual with spiritual. The things in the book were the things you live. Now, what's hard about that to understand that concept? That's where it's at. As a child of God, you have an absolute right to judge in the light of Scripture what you allow into your life with people and what they do. You do not have a right to judge that person where they're at with God. Truth will do that in time. Always does. You see, the sin of unrighteousness is the same as the sin of self-righteousness. Just two kinds of people. You have the Jews and the Gentiles. When I look at the Gentiles, I see one kind of people that I'm going to deal with in ministry. Men and women who live in unrighteousness. And all of the issues that deal with that. When you start to deal with religious people... 
when you start to deal with the Jews or a lot of God's people, you find self-righteousness. They're the same. You just don't deal with them the same. And that's why Romans chapter 2 is the, one of the greatest places in the Bible that's going to help you understand how you figure this thing out in your own life. You look at the Gentiles. You look at the Jews. You see how they look at the Gentiles where they're both wrong and then you bring it into your own life and you get the Pauline teaching on it that you and I don't have a right to judge. When you judge somebody else, you're doing the same thing they're doing. You don't have a right to judge anybody. But as a believer, you have a right to judge the things that they do as it applies and impacts your life with Christ. For some of those things will hurt you. Well, we've got to hold up there. Next week we'll take a little bit farther on. If you learn that great concept today... You'll be a better person when you work with people. You'll have a better understanding of how to deal with people. And uh, most importantly, and probably the most important thing, you'll have a better understanding of how to deal with yourself. Because that's where the judgment comes in. You know what Paul said one time? He says when he lets his mind get out of control and his mind goes places it shouldn't, he says, I take revenge on my mind. I like that word. It, more, it carries more weight with it than just you know, tell myself I was wrong. He doesn't cut himself any slack. And you and I as a child of God, when it comes to the book, we shouldn't cut ourselves any slack when it comes to us. I cut you a lot more slack than I cut myself. And that's the way it should be. We should go through life cutting other people more slack than we cut ourselves. If we're going to judge anybody, we judge ourselves. And then we judge through ourselves the things that we allow into our life and the things that we don't. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you and pray.